When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Good day, folks, and welcome to 1001 True Stories. My name is Brian Trombley, your host, and thank you for joining me. This show is where you'll get to meet some of the nicest people on Earth. Most of them, just regular, ordinary, everyday folks who experience something worth talking about. Now, it could be anything from a ghost story to a celebrity encounter to a close call, uh, all kinds of things. The theory here is that everyone has a story to tell, and we'd like to hear it. Today's guest on 1001 Stories is Eric Alper. He is one of the most well-known publicists in the music business in North America and has worked with some of the biggest names in the business and won multiple awards for his publicity campaign. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet a Beatle? On the line, folks, I have, um, well, I'm going to let him introduce himself to you. Um, he's quite well known in the music business throughout North America and probably the, some of the rest of the world at the same time. Go right ahead. My name is Eric Alper, and I am a music publicist in the industry and have been since I was told there would be no math. So I'm going to say since 1997. I, uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Since 1994, I kind of started, but then really going at it in around 1997, 1998 or so. Cool. As a publicist, what do you uh, do for those folks who say, geez, what does a publicist do? I work with artists and managers and record labels to take their music and their videos and their ideas and their vision and work with the media for reviews and interviews. I do a lot of tour support. So when the artist who shows, I'm the one that talks to the media and radio stations, newspapers, magazines, blogs, Spotify playlisters in order to get that music heard and seen throughout the land. Now, you dealing, of course, with celebrities by the score, Eric, uh, you must have have some... Uh... Um, well, in the business in general, you must have had some interesting encounters and stories that uh, that must have happened in your uh, tenure. Absolutely not, Brian. It's been an incredibly <laughs> boring ride throughout it. I'm going to say 99.9% .9 of the artists that I've worked with are really amazing people. These are people who I, for the most part, especially the older ones, people like a Bob Geldof or Ringo Starr or Sinead O'Connor, Andy Kim, The Spoons, um, Strange Advance. Um, they're, they're people I bought their records as a kid and as a teenager. And the the absolute complete honor of working with these people um, 
you, sometimes I have to kind of stop myself from asking a lot of really geeky questions that I don't think they would ever get asked, but only I want to know. Um, and you know, you're, you would be kind of in these positions as well as, you know, when you, when you talk to people who are musicians, um, you know, they're, they're always coming at it from a different perspective whenever they talk to people, because sometimes they're running late. Sometimes they love talking to fans and sometimes they're just really tired and they don't want to hear it. But when I'm talking to them on a professional level, you know, there's those odd seconds and moments and minutes and time when, you know, I, I'm just kind of having a little bit of a fan moment inside. And then you get down to the real business of it all. Um, but probably, you know, where I got started in the music industry, I think long really before I I was a kind of professional about it and, and working full time. When I was a kid, um, I was eight years old and my parents had a cottage just north of, of the city in, in Barrie, Ontario. And Barrie, Ontario in the 1970s was at a time when if you went to see the movies, um, you could literally just drop off your kid and come back like two hours later. And so one Saturday night, my parents took me to the movie theater and I went to go see the movie called American Hot Wax. And they went to go see something else, probably Love Story or some schmaltzy film like that. Um, An American Hot Wax told the story of the DJ from Cleveland named Alan Freed. And Alan Freed was the guy who coined the term rock and roll. He was one of the first rock and roll DJs in America. Um, and he used to not only be one of the first people to play amazing artists, like a little Richard or Elvis Presley or those rock and rollers that were coming up um, in the 1950s. Um, but he had one of the very first rock and roll concerts. And this the this film told his story and it was a docudrama so there was jay leno who was a comedian way before he got the tonight show he was playing a role um lorraine newman from snl at the time she was in there and tim mcintyre played alan freed and and i knew a little bit about about rock and roll i was i was seven at the time uh seven or eight years old um, and I, I bought records. Well, my parents bought me records and, but it was the stuff I wanted, you know, uh, the Partridge family, Donny Osmond, my sister was a couple of years older than I was. So I rated her collection, but she had all of these like tiger bead and teen bead and 16 magazine in the 1970s. So I was read up on Donny Osmond and Bobby Sherman and, and Leif Garrett and the Bee Gees and Andy Gibb and Donna Summer and what all of these kind of teen idols were, were up to. Um, so I, I knew about Buddy Holly. I knew um, a, a little bit about the Beatles, but, but not as much and certainly not thinking about it in, in any sort of way other than this is just music and it's noise. Um, my grandfather at that time had just sold his bar and he had a bar in Toronto called Grossman's Tavern and Grossman's Tavern was one of the first places in Canada 
that not only had live music, but actually served alcohol along with live music. It it, hmm. it started in 1948 and it took him a couple of years to get the liquor license because the city of Toronto thought that mixing alcohol and music together at a bar would put the city to hell in a handbasket. And they were right. Um, and, and that's where we lead to, to, to kind of, you know, today. Um, but um, when I was a kid and I would go to the bar, I would see um, pretty much a lot of my family members working there. There would be waiters and waitresses and cooks and so forth. And the bar is in, it's on Spadina Avenue in Toronto, which is in the heart of Kensington Market. And for people who don't know that area, it's kind of like where all the hippies and draft dodgers and different, um, different immigrants used to live. Um, cause it was cheap and it was a cultural Mecca. Um, you had Chinatown literally right down in the next neighborhood. Um, the Jewish people lived there. Um, German people lived there, um, all sorts of different, different backgrounds. Um, and that bar was the first time that I really saw music as a community weapon. It was a way that food and music and people and, and families and friends and um, people all kind of got together. So music to me was more than just a bunch of people standing up on stage and playing it. It was an emotional response. It was very much a community's response. And so um, when I was a kid and I saw American Hot Wax, it was really watching the birth of rock and roll happened right in front of me and gave me a real history lesson. Um, the end of the movie culminated into a concert. So it showed Alan Freed's very first concert. And up there on the screen was the real life Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. Um, and both those people absolutely without question blew my mind and changed my life because those were two guys that literally I thought came from another planet. They had absolutely no relevant place on earth except for they just blew my mind. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis was kicking the piano bench across the stage, telling the cops when they turned on the light to end the show, Jerry Lee Lewis stood up on the piano and said, you know, turn the lights on, you know, you can't have rock and roll with the lights on. And Chuck Berry was doing his duck walk across the stage and absolutely changed my life. And I walked out of there, I'm stunned. And it was kind of like how when I see kids and teenagers getting involved with, say, Pokemon or Harry Potter or Twilight or video games, it, it, it was that moment that I will never, ever forget what it was like to watch those two strange creatures perform on stage in a way that I've never seen before. Um, and I started to go out and buy my records and it was Jerry Lee Lewis's whole eye shaking going on, which I still have the 45 of, uh, and Chuck Berry's greatest hits on vinyl. And so from there, um, a couple of years later, I asked for a subscription to Billboard magazine and Billboard. Um, I, I didn't really care about memorizing the charts, although I did. Um, but what it did is it gave me a real fast education that I still have and still love now is finding out about what managers are doing and what 
a booking agent does and what this record label is all about and who's buying what and what's a publisher and what do they do and what is, you know, what do these charts mean when you're in a band from Cincinnati and you're breaking up, you know, you're, you're breaking through the bubbling under chart. Like what's that relevant? And all of that stuff was a real education. And the more that I read about music, at least on the industry side, the more I learned about my life and the people around me and my city and my country and the world, I learned more about racial divide in the 1960s from listening to Marvin Gaye and reading up on what somebody like Gladys Knights and the Pips had to go through when they were driving through certain Southern U.S. states. Um, I learned about the economy and what happens when, you know, the dollar drops and when the dollar goes up and how imports and exports affect the music industry and how the dollar in the UK affects imports coming in to Canada to Sam the Record Man and HMV. And all that stuff matters to me. We'll return to our conversation with Eric Alper right after these sponsor messages. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And now back to 1001 True Stories with Brian Trombley. It may not matter to a lot of other people, but, you know, Bruce Springsteen said that he learned more in the 45s of a groove, in, in the grooves of a 45 than what he did in all, in all of his school. And I kind of believe that because I'm almost the same way where I learned a little bit in school, but my history lessons were really told through the songs and through the music. And then that's when that music led me to reading on my own and becoming the reader that I am and reading, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of blogs every single week and month and, and reading more about the industry and where it's been and today and where it could go. Um, you know, cause at the end of it all, it's still really about the song. It's always about the song, but more and more, especially now, where social media has allowed artists to connect better and faster and more with mental health anguish in some cases, um, directly with their audience. Uh, that's a power that when I was growing up, artists simply didn't have or want. I mean, the mystery of not knowing 
what a Mick Jagger was doing on a Friday night in the 1970s was astonishing to me. I mean, you could only <laughs> dream of being a part of Keith Richards' world or wondering what Duran Duran were partying with and who they were with and and what the brooding Tears for Fears was like when they were really on the road. You didn't know any of that except for if Rolling Stone magazine or Spin or um, you know Trouser Press or some of the zines around in the city would tell you about it. And if you didn't get written up that week, you had no other idea what they were going through, except if you were on the radio. And now it's completely different. So the the aura of mystery is something that I understand why it's not there anymore. But I also understand how immensely powerful it was and how music changed once the music and the artists needed to make videos in the 1970s. They needed to become actors and actresses in videos um, where music became more disposable, where big business starts to take over the industry, where conglomerates took over radio, um, making it so that what is being played in Cincinnati, Ohio, is getting played on the exact same rock station in Toronto, which is the exact same rock station in Vancouver and so forth. And they would be, all be following three or four radio consultants to dictate what the rest of the continent was going to be listening to. So all of that was lost. Um, but it's all fine because we have more power being put in the artist today. But at the time, in 1978, in a small theater in Barrie, Ontario, there was still enough of a mystery on what music was all about and what artists were all about to completely change this dork's life that he has never looked back on it. Incredible. Now, tell us about that very first big client that you got as a publicist that maybe took you aback, like you said, you had your fan moment and the first one that made you went, oh my. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, so many of them. Like, I I mean, it wasn't certainly the biggest one that I've had, but I remember um, when I was, when I had my own PR company right after I graduated from university, I mean, I was charging $100 a month for what I was doing when other publicists were charging $1,000 a month. So I just want, I just had three rules. I wanted to do it better do it faster and do it cheaper than anybody else that was out there. And I still hold fast to those three rules, by the way. Um, and so the, when, when I, when I started to do independent PR after graduating from university, um, I was working with artists that had no right to have a publicist, but I was cheap <laughs> enough. And that all artists want is just members of their team. They're looking for a publicist. They're looking for a record label. They're looking for a booking agent and a manager. And so I was working really, really super hard. I was working seven days a week, 18 hours a day, kind of like what I'm doing now, um, <laughs> just with, with a little bit of bigger artists on the roster. Um, but I got a job offer working for a record label called Shoreline Records about three years after I started the company. And um, I, I went to go work for them full time. And at the time, they had three artists. They had the Nylons, they had Patricia Conroy, and they had the first EP from Nickelback. And Nickelback was planning on leaving because they knew what they were sitting on. They knew that they recorded an album, that there was just absolutely no way that a small independent label was going to break them. And they were right. And I told them that they were right because it was just 
that it was just an amazing album. But the Nylons were a band that like my parents loved. I mean, they were an acapella group who were selling out Ontario place and getting 18,000 people. Patricia Conroy was having hits on country radio that I listened to and I bought. Um, but the very, but about, so I worked at this label for about 18 months. And then uh, the president of our distribution company, Koch, um, called me up and said, hey, man, how would you like to work 600 artists instead of working the three that you are now? And I'm like, awesome. Um, and I signed on with Koch. And Koch was a distributor. So distributors essentially move a box of CDs or vinyl or cassette tapes from the warehouse to the record store. And then the marketing team essentially takes the budget that is given to them by the record label that they were distributing and spend it. And Koch had... I don't know, maybe about 100, 120 record labels, and all of them were American or UK-based. They didn't really care so much about Canada. Canada was worth 4% of sales in the world market to them. So they were going to literally spend 4% of their time on us, which was nothing. So they gave me the box of CDs, and I was working Smithsonian Folkways, which I loved because I got to work with Woody Guthrie's estate and, mm -hmm. and Pete Seeger and all these amazing artists. And I got to work with victory records and that was like taking back Sunday and Thursday and catch 22 and a whole bunch of other amazing bands and hopeless records and Prudemayo. Um, But my very, very, very first day working at Koch, I had absolutely no idea what, what I was really doing. Um, and they gave me a computer. I had the database that I brought over with me and they said, and it was a Monday. And they said, um, so the first thing that we want to kind of work on is Carl Cox, who at the time was a huge DJ um, and still is absolutely legendary figure. But at the time, he was like absolutely on fire. Um, Carl Cox is coming on Monday to Toronto to spin out this at like the government or, or somewhere. Um, and so here's the press release that they've written from the U S and so go for it. We'll leave you alone. And that was it. And I was just off. And I started to create a tour date database, um, listing all of the artists that they were on tour and Carl Cox was the first one that was coming up. And the very first phone call I made was to Tim Perlick, who was a music writer at now magazine. And I called Tim because this is, we're still using faxes Email is really kind of rare at the time. This was back in maybe 1998, 97 or so. Um, and then 1999, I kind of really kind of picked up. But Carl Cox was playing seven days from that. I call, I picked up the phone, called up Tim Perlick, and I'm like, hey, man, Carl Cox is coming. I know that it's really late and your deadline is in like tomorrow. Is there anything that you can do? And he said, you have perfect timing because the cover of the issue just dropped out. The artist just canceled the interview. If you can get me Carl Cox in the next hour, I'll stick him on the cover. So I called up the record label. They gave me <laughs> Carl's number. I called up Carl and I'm like, hi, like my name is Eric Alper and I work for a company called Koch and you don't know who I am or who we are, but we're your distributors and I have an interview request for you. And if you say yes, you can get the cover. He said, yes, did a fabulous interview. My very first phone call as a professional publicist, I got the cover of the biggest North American weekly in Canada. And I didn't get another one for like seven years after that. Um, only, only cause <laughs> it was just such a fluke, but that was, um, I just thought every day was going to be like this. Every phone call I make, they were going to give me the cover. And sadly it was not that, but there's times when like, 
you know, I worked with Ringo Starr for seven, eight years on a number wow. of albums here in Canada. Did the press conference for him because the All Star Band was was doing their rehearsals up at Rama, Ontario, which is just north of the city at Casino Rama. Um, so that moment, those moments, you're looking at him going like you're a Beatle. Like there's, there's no other way to say it. And he knows that, you know, that you are thinking that he's a Beatle and you know that he is thinking that. So you just basically just do small talk until he's able to open up. Um, Bob Geldof was amazing. I mean, like most people got up at four o'clock in the morning to watch Live Aid back in 1985 and bought, do they know it's Christmas and bought the Boomtown Rat. Sinead O'Connor was one of the nicest, kindest people I've ever worked with. In fact, yeah. I, I, I kept in touch her, with yeah. her. Yeah, I kept in touch with her and spoke to her maybe about three months before, four months before she passed away. Um, there's so many. Andy Kim. I mean, I bought the Archie's sugar sugar as a kid 5440 i went to see them at least a dozen times growing up and have worked with them junk house and tom wilson it, it's it's everybody that i still get a phone call or an email asking if i want to work it it's it's always a yes even if you're a 15 year old with a brand new single and you've never worked with anybody before I'll work with you. You may not necessarily get the cover of Dow magazine, um, <laughs> but there's absolutely a road for everybody to, to take. And there's absolutely people out there that want to listen to new music all the time. And so, you know, you may not get entertainment tonight in the States, but certainly there's enough out there for people to build a career on. Um, so just, I'm, I'm, I'm just impressed with everybody. And you, you know why? Because, and I'll answer that question for you. Do you know why, Brian? I'll tell why? you. Why, because, Eric? <laughs> because I can't play a single note of music. So <laughs> all they do is magic to me. You know, having a hit is astonishing to me. Do you know how many people have to get things right in order to have a hit? It's amazing yeah. that, that we have a hit in the first place, that things work. I mean, look at all the people when you watch a movie on Netflix. Think about all the people whose names are in the credits. And any one of them could have derailed that project to oblivion. Every single person working for that record label and the management company and the booking agent and the, the, the radio trackers and the publicists all have to be doing things the right way, whatever way that is in order to make that song a hit. And yet nobody can still figure out how it's done. So <laughs> I've got as much of a chance in having success as anybody else out there. Exactly. And that's what gets me up in the morning because I can't play. And you took a different route. I mean, most of us uh, get out of high school and we want to become rock stars. And you got out of high school and you said, no, I want to work oh, behind the scenes. Oh, don't get me wrong. I had those <laughs> moments of, of like, I should be up there on stage. Um, but again, like, what am I going to do? I can't sing. Um, I can keep a beat, um, but not on a set of drums. I can keep a beat in the car with the steering wheel and my hands and my feet on the gas pedal. I can do that. Put me in front of a drum kit. See, that's how little I know. The drummer <laughs> does not go in front of the drum kit. Put me behind the drum kit. Yeah, I'll do something. I'll make noise. but. I can't figure it out. You know, I got no coordination for it. Stick me in a studio. I wouldn't know of any of it, what to do, but uh -huh. I love it. And I can figure out how 
to take the finished song and do something with it with the group of people that I do know how they operate, which is the media, because I kind of know what they're looking for. Awesome. Eric Alper, I can't thank you enough for coming by and telling us about your incredible adventures or ongoing oh, adventures. I didn't even I didn't even tell you the actual story yet. That was just the lead and no, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It's That's so good a- to ha- to always always tell that story. It's so good to talk to you and see you too, man. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, sir. And uh, like I said, it's um, uh, an interesting adventure. I was in an adventure that's still ongoing. I know that for a fact. Yeah. As uh, long as I can wake up in the morning and get out of bed and go down there to the office, I'm, I'm, I'll always be here. Awesome. That's incredible. Thanks again, Eric. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 True Stories with me, Brian Tremblay. And if you think you have a story to share or know someone who does, email me at brian at morinstreetmedia.com. That's brian at morinstreetmedia.com. The link is in the show notes. We enjoy reviews as well as you sharing our show with others. There will be new stories from more interesting people every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. So, until next Sunday, this is 1001 True Stories with Brian Tremblay. Everyone's got a story. What's yours? America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.